Welcome to the Later in Life Planning Show with Patrick Colley, brought to you by Keystone Elder Law, right here on News Radio WHP 580. Now, here's your host, Patrick Colley. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Later in Life Planning Show, sponsored by Keystone Elder Law. At Keystone Elder Law, it is our mission to shield the middle class from the costs and the challenges of getting older. And if you've been listening to recent shows or you want to find uh, recent or past episodes, uh, this is the 60th one of them. So you can go back and find a number of episodes. You'll find uh, whether it's through whp580.com and the podcast menu in the upper left or on your iHeart app or your Apple Podcasts app on your phone, you can find the Later in Life Planning Show and you will see that I frequently bring on guests who are providing other ways to add to your shield, to be ready for the costs and the challenges in the later years of life. So recently we had uh, someone talking about music therapy and how that might be the, the key to improving quality of life. We've had people talking about cardiovascular health. We've had people talking about dementia, home care, home health, which is different. Uh, all kinds of resources that are out there that might be the key for you, for your spouse, for your parent. There's all these uh, solutions out there, and I'm very fortunate. I consider myself blessed to know all of these people and to frequently call on them when they have the key to protecting someone in the later years of life um, that I don't personally have as an elder law attorney. But, you know, I do this often enough where I meet with clients and I see predictable threats coming. I see a lack of planning. I see common mistakes. And there's a reason why we at Keystone Elder Law put such an emphasis on education before you start doing legal or financial planning. There's there's quite a bit more than just having a will when it comes to estate planning. Um, And that's why we offer free education. So in addition to this show, we do seminars, we do webinars. Every week on Wednesday evenings, I'm speaking to a few hundred people Uh, through a webinar. They're in the comfort of their own home. I'm staying late at the office, but I'm educating people on all of these challenges that come up. And most people are just very appreciative because it is kind of like a foreign language. And then when the light bulb goes off for them, they're ready to start planning. But through all of this education, uh, we're, we're, we're trying to prevent people from being in a crisis down the road. We want to build the shield that prevents the crisis. And that crisis usually means a significant decline in health, a decline in independence, a decline in the ability to function. This happens all the time. And we see the common mistakes. We see the lack of planning for these very predictable events in the later years of life. So in this episode, I want to run through some of the common mistakes That we see at Keystone Elder Law so that you can avoid making those mistakes. You can plan properly. And this is just a a smattering of issues that just came up in the last week or two. I mean, I could probably do this every week and just say, oh, I saw a new common mistake this week. But I mentioned, I believe, in a previous episode, uh, the the case of a 90-year-old lady who was, uh, was and still is receiving excellent care in a very nice nursing home in South Central Pennsylvania. Now, she, I was not involved with the strategy, and, and it is a legal problem to need that level of care because uh, you have to see this as a very big creditor. Uh, she was paying privately for about $15,000 a month. 
That's how much she had been paying for years. And that's fine. I that That's one way to go about it. But the problem was her savings were almost completely gone. They had just dwindled over the year, paying that much money every month. Now, her adult children only wanted the best care for their mom. So receiving an inheritance was not a high priority for them. That's always good to hear. They just want what's best for mom. So they were fine with mom paying all of her money at the end of her life uh, to get really, really good care. But when mom runs out of money, which was imminent when I spoke with them, she was going to need Medicaid as the safety net to pay for the nursing home. That's how, I don't know, about 80% of residents of nursing homes pay for the care because eventually at paying 15000 a month, you're going to run out of money. So Medicaid is the, is the safety net. Otherwise, if, if Medicaid's not available and she has no money to pay, the adult children are on the hook. And in fact, the nursing homes can sue the adult children to get paid for the care that they're providing. And they, they, the nursing homes provide heroic work. I mean, we need more of them. We need them to stay in business. So, you know, I, I want them to get paid one way or another, and the law allows them to go after the adult children. So here was the major problem that I encountered with that particular case. This woman owned a very large tract of land in Cumberland County, and there was no home on it. It was just land that had been in the family for a long time. And saving that land was a high priority for the adult children. That land meant something to them. It was a sentimental uh, part of their family. So inheriting money from mom was no big deal, uh, but they, they weren't all that interested in that. But they did want to save this land for themselves and future generations of the family. Unfortunately, the Medicaid rules say that mom is not going to be eligible when she runs out of money to privately pay for care. She will not be eligible for Medicaid to pay the nursing home until she sells that land and then use the, the uses the money from uh, the sale of the land to pay for her care and runs out of money again. Then Medicaid will come, come in and pay. So had the adult children in that uh, family known about middle-class asset protection, the land could have been saved with relatively little expense. You know, if they had attended one of these uh, webinars that I do every Wednesday evening, and, and you can find these, by the way, going to keystoneelderlaw.com and using the workshops tab, uh, it'll it, it's pretty easy. You just find when the next one is. You can, f- with a few clicks, put in uh, your your email so we can send you the link for the for the webinar. You're and you're registered, and then you'll even get a recording of it if you need to watch it over again or share it with your family or your friends. So had they done that, they would have known well before mom ran out of money that there's a legal way to protect that land, but they didn't know about that. So instead. To save that land, the adult children had to buy the land at fair market value to preserve it. Now think about that. If mom, you know, over 90 years old, if she had just died, then the adult children would inherit the land. That, and that would have been that. But because mom needed nursing home care and because they missed the opportunity for legal planning to protect the land well in advance of running out of money in a nursing home, they had to pay a lot of money to save the family land. There was a similar story just in the last week or two at Keystone Elder Law. We got a call from adult children where both parents are over 80 and both have dementia. 
The parents own over 100 acres of land that has been in the family for over 200 years. Talk about a family attachment to some land in Pennsylvania. And they had no legal planning to protect the land. So while skilled nursing care looks very likely in the future for them, and they don't have a whole lot of money to pay $14,000, $15,000 a month, so the, the result is going to be the same. Relatively inexpensive legal planning could have saved all of that land, kept it in the family, protected it even from future threats when the adult children uh, run into health issues in the later years of their life. But instead, the adult children have to pay fair market price to save the land. So, you know, when you plan in advance, uh, you you can save a whole lot of money. You can save uh, something that has sentimental importance to the family. But people simply don't know about these predictable threats. They don't know how long ter- how common long term care is. They don't know how expensive it is until they're in the middle of it. And then a lot of the planning opportunities, you know, I'm sorry to say, are are off the table. It, but if you if you work well in advance of this very likely phenomenon, you can protect a lot of what you have inherited or what you've worked very hard to uh, to accumulate uh, against these predictable threats. You can build a shield. So people don't know these ways to build a shield. That's why I offer so much free education at Keystone Elder Law. And that's why I encourage people to take in that ed- education, whether it's an in-person seminar, we'll come out and speak to your book club, your church group, your, you know, whatever, uh, your community organization. Uh, We we do as much speaking as possible free of charge because we don't want people to be in these terrible situations. And I guess, you know, focusing on this first common mistake, it's just not understanding what the threats are. And it's not understanding that there are opportunities in your legal planning, in your estate planning, to not just check a box and say, I got a will, I have a power of attorney, I have a, a healthcare power of attorney, but you know, what does it do for you? You want to know how is it designed for your family, knowing that there's long-term care expenses that are likely for everybody, knowing that some families have children with money management problems, other family dynamic issues. Make a plan that fits your circumstances, but it helps to learn a little bit first about how do these threats work, and then how do the solutions work as a shield to protect me against them. I'll go on with more common mistakes after a break. You're listening to the Later in Life Planning Show, sponsored by Keystone Elder Law on News Radio WHP 580. Now, more of the Later in Life Planning Show, here on News Radio WHP 580. We are back on the Later in Life Planning Show, sponsored by Keystone Elder Law. I'm Patrick Cauley. I'm the owner of Keystone Elder Law, and I'm your host on this show. And today I am speaking about common estate planning mistakes, common planning mistakes generally, not understanding threats that are coming down the road for you and your family, not understanding the solutions available for the middle class to protect themselves uh, against those threats, to build a shield to protect themselves against the challenges of getting older and and that you know I I happen to think that the middle class needs asset protection and needs a shield more than anybody else. Certainly more than uh, the ultra wealthy. You know if they if they fail to build a good shield, they're just going to give more money to the IRS. But they still have millions and millions and millions. The people who have nothing need legal planning 
but there are safety nets available to them where they don't have a lot to lose. Everybody else, you have the possibility of losing everything that you worked for decades to save. And, you know, everybody wants to give the next generation a leg up, you know, or maybe you have charitable organizations that are near and dear to your heart. But without adequate planning for incapacity, for asset protection, uh, you you can't just assume you're going to have anything at the end of your life. So I go through all of this when I when I provide webinars, you know, KeystoneElderLaw.com, uh, the workshops tab. You get signed up for a webinar. You're going to learn a whole lot about how your plan can work for you and your circumstances. Some people you know, I think walk away from it and they feel like they have to watch it again and you get a recording so you can do that or fast forward to a particular part and just watch that part again. There is a lot to understand and I try to break it down into plain English uh, and and a lot of people really, really appreciate it and they thank me for doing the education. But inevitably, the question comes up, I'm overwhelmed. How do I even get started with my planning? And the best answer to that is, something that everyone can benefit from. Before you meet with an attorney, write everything down. Write down what you own. And I don't mean, you know, every piece of furniture or family heirlooms, although at some point you will want to give some thought to sentimental items and who should receive them. But I'm talking about bank accounts, investment accounts, retirement accounts, life insurance policies, real estate. Who owns them? You know, if you write down an account and it's with such and such bank. Okay, what's the account number? Is it owned jointly by you and another person or just by you? Okay, so you get through all of your accounts. List, uh, I don't know, regular bills that you have to pay, utilities, property taxes, I don't even regular charges to your credit card. That might be something that someone else might want to be on the lookout for. If you if you're not going to renew Netflix, well, you're going to keep paying them unless somebody stops the subscription. So if you work with an attorney, a financial advisor, an accountant, any other professional, write down those names and contact information. The reason to do this, to just start by recognizing what you have, how you own it, do you own it with another person, who are the professionals who help you with this stuff, the reason to do this is so if another person needs to seamlessly step into your shoes legally and carry on all of your adult responsibilities when you become incapacitated, this is the roadmap. Someone with legal authority through a good power of attorney will be able to pay your bills, get your taxes done, change the title on a vehicle, sell real estate, but only if that person knows what you own and which financial institution to contact. You know, I, I can equip them with all kinds of great legal authority, but if they have no idea what bills to pay or who to contact or where the money is, it's not going to do them a whole lot of good. So I call this the roadmap. It's what legacies of gratitude are made of. You know, by spending some time to write down what you have and where it is, you are making life so much easier for your family members. And and how many times have I heard someone at Keystone Elder Law tell me, I just don't want to be a burden on my kids? Well, then make a roadmap. If nothing else, make a roadmap. Make it easy to figure out the financial details of your life. If you become sick or injured, 
that person can step right in with a good power of attorney and just keep taking care of everything. If you pass away, they're going to have a roadmap to figure out all the details of your life, administer the estate, and uh, get your money to the people you wanted to receive it. After you finish writing everything down, think about the first big goal of planning for the later years of life, incapacity planning. You know, the other two, by the way, are asset protection and a distribution plan for your life savings when you're gone. So incapacity planning, asset protection, distribution plan. Incapacity planning means you're going to legally allow another person, preferably someone else, as a backup option. So you're going to think of at least two people to stand in your shoes legally to speak with banks, insurance companies, and government agencies on your behalf. Incapacity planning also means you are legally allowing another person to speak with your medical provider and make your decisions. If you're unable to listen to a doctor weigh pros and cons about a course of treatment and say yes or no, you need somebody else to say yes or no for you. You know, do we go forward with the proposed treatment or don't we? So you start all this by thinking about... Uh, you know, the, the people in your life who would have the necessary skill sets to do this for you for financial decisions. Is this somebody who pays their own bills? Uh, is it somebody who's organized? Is it somebody who can, uh, who will be diligent and looking out for your interests? They'll, si- they'll show up, they'll sign your name on an agreement, they'll change the title on a vehicle. For medical decisions, there's a little bit more of an emotional component. Will they be able to have the emotional strength to stand at the foot of your hospital bed and make level-headed decisions uh, in conversation with doctors about your treatment options. And you could go further and write things down uh, as a roadmap for your family, um, all kinds of things from, you know, this is how you maintain my house or whatever else. But as at least if you equip somebody to carry on your adult responsibilities, make financial decisions, make uh, legal decisions, make medical decisions, you've really made life a whole lot easier for people. And while you're doing that, I'm going to tell you about a recent uh, case I ran into. You're going to learn a lot. I mean, when you suddenly realize, wait a second, um, I thought that both of our names were on the deed to the property, but it's just my name. So if I die, uh, you, have, you, my spouse, have to go through probate just to get the deed into your name. Um, you know, how's that going to work out for your family? And so you start to figure out, wait a second, I thought we canceled or I thought we closed out this account. We still have it. So that's going to be really enlightening for you. And then it's possible to think about how you're planning for all of this. But I came up, uh, I I encountered a a couple recently uh, where the uh, man and a woman buy a house together, but they're not married. Uh, They had been together for a while. So they buy this house to protect each other. The arrangement on the deed is called tenants in common. So you might have a tenants in common deed if you inherited a property along from your parents along with a sibling or if you went in on a vacation property with a friend. Tenants in common means each owner has a separate interest. So if there's two of them, they each own 50% and they can leave their 50% interest through their will. They can sell their 50% interest um, you know, the, the other 50% owner can buy out the other one, but they have to pay for that other 50%. So there's separate 50% interests. Married couples typically are joint tenants with a right of survivorship. So what's all this legal jargon mean? I found this, by the way, to be one of the most boring courses in law school, property law. 
and it, it's filled with these terms like this. But when you meet an actual couple, it becomes real life. This actual couple eventually did get married, so they had this tenants in common deed. So you know, just in case if one of them if they split up, and and one wanted to live there, well, the one living there has to buy out the other one. If one of them had died before they got married, well, the deceased partner's estate owns half the property, and it can be deeded to other family members, or it, or it ha- it can be bought out. But but they were not joint tenants with the right of survivorship, which is when you both have 100% interest. So one dies, the other one just owns it. What happens if you get married and you have a tenants in common deed? Does the deed automatically change into joint tenants with the right of survivorship, meaning if one spouse dies, the other one just owns the property? No need to go through probate. No, you know, it just becomes theirs. That's what you want, but it does not automatically transform. So we're working through the the estate plan for the man in that situation who, after he and his wife got married, his wife unfortunately passed away. He, uh, down the road, remarried. So now he and his uh, spouse are trying to plan for what happens to this property, and we discover you never updated your deed. Guess what you can leave through your will? <laughs> 50%. The other 50% is hanging out there with your first wife's, your late wife's um, uh, estate that was never fully resolved. So this was enlightening for them because they just never stopped and thought about what they owned. And if you start by writing things down and looking at what you own, you start to realize a whole lot more about how you own things and how you can pass it on to others. More on common mistakes or misunderstandings in estate planning when we come back from a break. You are listening to the Later in Life Planning Show, sponsored by Keystone Elder Law, right here on News Radio WHP 580. Welcome back to the Later in Life Planning Show on News Radio WHP 580. Here's Patrick Colley. I am speaking today about. Common mistakes, misunderstandings, issues that come up in planning that that people are surprised, I think, uh, to learn about because, one, they never took the time to understand what they own. They never understood really how it works to get your property to another person. They don't understand the need to protect your property before you pass away or else you're making a great big assumption that you're going to have something at the end of your life. That's not a good assumption to make. So all of these issues come up, and you know I should emphasize that estate planning is—I'm uh, not sure if it's equal parts, but it's part financial planning, it's it's part legal planning. So the financial planning—do you have insurance? Uh, do you have a beneficiary listed on on your insurance policy? So if you p- pass away, the money goes to that person. Do you have a beneficiary listed on your retirement account? Sometimes people arrange what they own financially to avoid going through the legal process called probate, where everything's frozen for over a year while creditors get paid, taxes get paid, and then finally we tell the court we're ready to distribute everything to the people who are the intended beneficiaries. And that's fine if you arrange things that way. But one common question comes up that has both financial and legal implications. Should you gift your money or your real estate to your children now or should you wait until you're no longer around and it goes through your estate? Now, gifting now has its advantages. So one is that your children probably need your money now more than they will need it in the future when you pass away. That that usually just is the way it works out. Not always, but 
often the younger they are, the more they could use your support. Another advantage is that there is effectively no tax on gifts that you make during your life. But if you die with the very same money in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, 4.5% of it goes to the Department of Revenue in Harrisburg. That's called the inheritance tax. So we don't have a gift tax, uh, you know, a piece of the action uh, going to the government uh, of any transfer of wealth during your life. But we do have the government taking a piece out of a transfer from your estate to children, uh, friends, nieces, nephews. And 4.5% is the lowest rate. Unfortunately, if you if you don't have kids, you're leaving money to siblings, nieces, nephews, friends. It jumps up to 12 or 15% of your money. So why not give away money, stocks, real estate to people you care about while you're alive to avoid that tax when you're gone? Well... Yeah, that, that is one advantage to to gifting. But there, here are three reasons to be cautious about gifting during your life. Number one is simply a loss of control. So don't assume that your child will hold on to your money and support you with it. And and maybe you say, well, I, I trust my children. Great. You did a good job raising them. But there are some things the child can't help. What if the child runs up debt and creditors come after that child and any money in the child's name. So, you know, another one is the child could simply die before you do. Where where does the money go through that child's estate? What does their estate plan say? Do you even know? So there are things that, that you know, even if, if your children have plenty of integrity and every intention to support you, things happen where your money might be gobbled up or go somewhere else, and you can't uh, assume that they'll hold on to it and, and support you. Um, the other, the second reason to be cautious about gifting is if you need long-term care, which, by the way, is uh, one in three of us will have dementia after the age of 65, one in three, and close to 70% of the population will need some form of long-term care. Now, skilled nursing care, the nursing home, costs, I don't know, $13,000, $14,000 a month in south-central Pennsylvania. So you will probably want the middle-class safety net of Medicaid to be an option on the table. But if you have gifted anything of value in the previous five years before you apply to Medicaid for them to pay the nursing home bill, you will not be eligible for Medicaid, you know, because they're going to impose this penalty period that depends on how much gifting you did. But if you unload a lot of money to avoid inheritance tax because there really is no gift tax at all, uh, during your life, uh, well, then that turns, and then you need Medicaid in the next five years. That turns into a period of time where you have to pay thirteen, fourteen, fifteen thousand dollars a month for your care. So Medicaid has some brutal rules, and the five-year look-back for gifting is one of them. Um, and unless you have a current diagnosis, you may not know if you're in the five-year period before needing skilled nursing care. You could have a stroke. You could have an accident. You know, some other unforeseen medical issue could come up and then you need very expensive care and then the gifting can backfire on you. It's great for tax avoidance and keeping money in your family. Uh, It's great for supporting kids who need the money now, but you need to be wary of that five-year look back for Medicaid, which is how by far most people pay for nursing home care. And the third reason to be cautious is just capital gains tax. So this is really stocks and real estate. Anything that gets more valuable over time, 
I've used the example on this show before. If you bought your home in 1990 for $100,000 and now it's worth $300,000, you you could sell it yourself if it's your primary residence. You can sell it and pocket all of that $200,000 profit. Uh, and you want your children to to get the same treatment, but it's not their primary residence. So if you gift it to them during your life for whatever reason, avoiding inheritance tax, saving it from long-term care, there's a better way to do this uh, because they're going to be stuck with the 1990 value as the floor and the house gets more valuable. Then when they sell it, the difference between the 1990 value and what they sell it for, that's the profit. And that's gonna uh, it's gonna be subject to capital gains tax, which is either it's usually at least fifteen percent. So that's gonna be a lot of profit going to the taxing authorities. So those are some reasons to be cautious about gifting. Here's another issue that that comes up from time to time. Somebody tells me they have two, three, four children, but they want to leave everything to one child. And why would they do that? Well, one child is more responsible than the other child. One of your children uh, passed away, and I'm going to leave everything to the surviving child to take care of my grandchildren, uh, the children of my my uh, child who passed away. There's there's a lot of reasons why people do this. They're just they're, they just say, you know what? I'm going to leave everything to one of my children. They'll do the right thing. Will they? I mean, again, I mean, maybe you trust your children. Maybe they have the the utmost integrity. But what if other obstacles come along? So this is kind of like, uh, you know, gifting. There's there's some of the same concerns here. But, you know, let's say one child gets the money and there's the other children or grandchildren and they're saying, hey, uh, you know, grandma left all the money to you. uh, But the idea was you would spread the wealth around. She was trusting you. But then you hear the these common rationalizations that come come up for keeping the money that was like because it now is the one child's money, and you hear things like, "Well, I took care of her, you know. Where were all of you? I was the one there, uh, making sure she got to doctor appointments. I was making sure she was okay in her home. None of you were around, so I'm justified in keeping most or all of this money." Or you might hear something like, "You know, look, I have lots of kids of my own. None of my siblings do, so." I think that that our parent wanted me to to have this money to support uh, her adoring grandchildren or, you know, look, look, you people are irresponsible with money. And she, you know, mom knew you would just waste it. So that's why she left it all to me. Um, You know, these kind of justifications come up and it you know, we see this in the most tight knit families, uh, good people. It's just the combination of grief and money, and and now these little fissures, these breaks, but to these cracks between family members start to open up, and eventually it can tear families apart. And then there are adult children not speaking to each other, uh, and that's not the legacy that you want to leave. So, and and even if you did leave everything to one child, trusting that they'll do the right thing, they'll spread the wealth around the family. Um, well. Do they even know what your wishes are? You know, did you at least write that down for them? Um, You know, what if that child, and again, this goes back to the dangers of gifting. What if you leave everything to that one child and before they spread the wealth around, that child dies? What does their estate plan say? What if the child gets sued? What if the child, uh, you know, has creditors? What if they go through a divorce? You know, a lot of your assets are going to be going elsewhere outside the family. So there's always some risk 
uh, in in this this plan that some people seem to think is a good idea, just leaving everything to the one child who will do the right thing and spread everything around. While you're thinking about you know leaving everything, which might be a combination of your beneficiary designations on financial accounts and your will, I'm going to focus on one issue I'm dealing with right now, which is do not lose your original will. That is your admission ticket to the court uh, to administer the estate. So if we can't, if we have no admission ticket, we can't get into probate, we can't settle your estate, and you need the original because the courts are on the front lines of protecting everything that, that was your, your estate. And they don't want somebody coming up with an old will and saying, yep, this is the one, and sure, it's just a copy, but this is the one that, that they really uh, wanted to rely upon. Well, how does the, the court doesn't want other people uh, who you intended to receive money getting cut out because somebody found this old copy of a will. So you have to jump through all these hoops just to get the will accepted by the court. And it's it's tough. They make it tough on purpose. So make sure you keep your original will in a safe place. More common mistakes and misunderstandings about estate planning when we come back from a break. This is the Later in Life Planning Show sponsored by Keystone Elder Law on News Radio WHP 580. It's the Later in Life Planning Show here on News Radio WHP 580. Now your host, Patrick Colley. We are back on the Later in Life Planning Show sponsored by Keystone Elder Law. And I'm going on a bit of a rant today about common mistakes and misunderstandings that despite all of my efforts to do free education, I'm just not reaching everybody. And I probably never will reach Everybody, But I, I am grateful to all of you listening to this show, uh, whether I have a guest telling you about some resource available to you or whether uh, you, you listen to the show and you want to hear some of the, the, the legal solutions for legal problems that come up in the, the later years of life. And even just what I was saying before the break, um, you know, that that, uh, you know, I. I, I, I do all this education. I tell people, this is how you start. This is the next thing you do. These are the challenges you have to anticipate. Once you've addressed those, let's talk about a distribution plan because we've protected everything you have. But inevitably, you know, I, I run into these situations where mistakes have been made. There's no planning. There's poor planning. And I was talking before the break about, you know, someone who went to the trouble maybe a couple decades ago and they had a will an original will. They had it signed. They had it witnessed by two people. It was signed in front of a notary, but then it was misplaced. And all of the hoops you have to jump through just to administer the estate. And and the, the court will not just accept a copy on your word that the, this, was, uh, this was my parents' uh, will because you know, they, they have to look out for people engaging in funny business uh, where they're trying to get a different outcome than what the deceased person intended. Uh, and the court can certainly deny the request to honor a copy. But but you have to, you know, you have to come up with, here are all the efforts we, we took to find it. You know, we, we looked all over uh, the place to find the original will. Uh, then you have to come up with two witnesses who can say, you know, I know he did this will and that's his signature. I mean, are those people even still alive? I mean, so you 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 want to keep it in a, in a safe place, and this is this is just the most practical of of problems that I I guess I can give you some counsel on, some some guidance on is just keep it in a safe place, and I'm, this is why we have big, heavy, fire resistant, and waterproof safes at Keystone Elder Law. Those safes are full of original wills that will not be misplaced, 
uh, so that settling an estate will will go a whole lot easier. But here is, I, I think, probably one of the more important takeaways in people who attend my uh, my webinars, my workshops, the uh, in-person seminars that I do. Um, you know, one thing I'm always emphasizing is don't assume that you will die with money. So when people call our office sometimes and they say, well, I just, I just need to get a will, I guess. That seems like an adult thing to do. Yes, you probably do need a will, but the will does nothing for you during your lifetime. And if you don't manage incapacity... If you don't build a shield against things like long-term care expenses or other threats to to your uh, hard-earned savings, you may have nothing left when you pass away. Here's a recent call that we we got at Keystone Elder Law, which is just infuriating to me, but it was a, a wife whose husband was in a nursing home. Wife and husband were running out of money because, of course, the nursing home is costing over $13,000 every single month. And that was the only safe place for the husband. His medical condition was such that that wife could no longer take care of husband at home. Uh, he needed around-the-clock assistance. He needed licensed nurses, licensed physical therapists, and so forth. And he needed nurses' aides to, you know, to help him get around and to get dressed and bathed and so forth. And especially in the later years of life, you know, I often look at at a couple like this, and and if they're still trying to make a go of it uh, at home, I I say, look, if he falls in the middle of the night, I'm looking at the wife. Can you pick him up? Are you going to injure yourself in in the process? I mean, would you even try to pick him up, or is this a nine one one call? And that's normally the tipping point when when the answer is yes, it's a nine one one call, or oh, we've already called nine one one a number of times. Yeah, nursing home care is essential, and. And so, but but this this wife, I guess, got some advice from somebody at a particular nursing home where, and I, I, I know a lot of the people at nursing homes, and a lot of them are very smart and, and would never give this advice. But the nursing home told the wife that, yes, you must not only keep paying us the over $13,000 a month, but since you're running out of money, you have to sell your home, which she did. She sold her home. She moved in with a friend where she's living now, and now she's using the proceeds of the sale to pay this nursing home. This is infuriating because, yes, the Medicaid rules are rough. The husband has to go broke before he's eligible for the nursing home to be paid by Medicaid, but the Medicaid rules allow going broke in a way that protects the family home and protects the wife living in that home. The, the rules do not require that the wife go into complete poverty. The rules do not require that the wife sell the home she's living in. You know, here's how it should have gone for that poor woman. She, If she had called us but well before she went more than a, a month or two paying that kind of, of price to the nursing home, and certainly when they gave her that advice, you have to sell your house. If she had called us, we would have said, no, we're going to protect the house. The rules allow that. We're going to look at all the money that you and your husband still have in savings, understanding she's already paid for a lot of care. Maybe there's not a lot of savings. That's okay. We'll protect 100% of it for the wife. And when we're done with the process, all you're going to lose is whatever the regular income is of the husband. So his Social Security, any pension. Okay, uh, we have to turn that over to the nursing home, and then Medicaid pays the rest of the bill. But as far as your home, your car, 
uh, the wife at home, if she has any sort of retirement account, that's all protected. And when we look at all the bank accounts or investment accounts or life insurance, we're going to look at all of that. But at the end of the day, all of it is going to be in the wife's name. She does not have to go into poverty. So how somebody, I guess, I'm, I'm guessing it was a failure of training. I don't think it was any, uh, you know, diabolical scheme by one person to get a nursing home uh, paid privately until this woman goes into poverty. I, I think it was just a failure of training of this particular employee at a nursing home. But the fact that this woman followed the advice of someone who had no idea what they were talking about and, and no idea about these ways to protect the middle class from utter poverty, because through no fault of theirs, the husband got really sick. That is just really, really hard for me to hear. Um, but that's how it should have gone for her. And, and, and the takeaway there is you can't assume and you just get a will with no asset protection ahead of time, no incapacity plan. Getting sick in the later years of life is not only predictable, it happens to most people before they pass away, it's a legal problem. And you might not think about that. You think, well, if I get sick, I've got to have the healthcare professionals. Yes, you do. But this is also a legal problem because this is a major creditor coming after all of your life savings. So there are ways to protect it. And I really wish that that woman had had underst- uh, understood all of that. You know, other issues come up along the way that are are maybe less common, but but more common than they used to be. Like going through that exact scenario, what if it was a blended family? What if this was not the first marriage for that husband and wife? And and what if I what I just told you would be the process to save a hundred percent of what they have so the wife at home doesn't go into poverty, but then the husband in the nursing home has children from a previous relationship and maybe they see the money that that was dad's was also their deceased mom's and they you know, they the, my parents worked really hard from that and now the second wife's getting all that money. Well, there's ways to plan ahead for that as well, um, because that can make for a very, very emotional and tense situation when when they see all the money going to the other spouse. That's the only way to save all of it. Uh, but I sure would like to do it in a way that that preserves family harmony. Um, you know, I, I had a family recently where uh, second marriage, the wife sold her house to move in with the husband, but only husband's name was on the deed to the house. So, of course, her children are saying, well, stop using your money to renovate this house now because at the end of the day, it's all going to his kids, not us. Uh, well, with trust planning, we guaranteed, regardless of long-term care, regardless of who passes away first, the mom's going to have a place to live if husband dies first, and then both Children from both sides of the family will be taken care of when both parents are gone in proportion to, you know, what was contributed to the house. So there are ways to control these things uh, and to anticipate the challenges, not only of long-term care, not only of uh, who gets what uh, in a blended family, but do it in a way that you can control things uh, that you probably thought were beyond your control and 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 were causing all kinds of uh, unrest among children, especially children of previous relationships. And I don't mean all of this to say there's no planning at all. If you're unmarried and you have no kids, of course there's planning. Incapacity planning might be your your number one focus, but 
But even, you know, the government has a plan if you don't make a will, and it might not include the the Humane Society or St. Jude's or the local library if those are near and dear to your heart. So you have to make a will to not have it go through uh, some genealogical search to find everybody in the far reaches of your family who might have an interest. So there's there's planning even when you're unmarried and, and have no kids. Hopefully this rundown of some observations from just the last week or two was helpful. If you want to learn more, sign up for a webinar using the workshops tab at Keystone Elder Law. I go into this. I answer questions for people. I hope this was helpful, and I hope you join me again next week on the Later in Life Planning Show sponsored by Keystone Elder Law on News Radio WHP 580.